Good and gracious God, what a great mystery it is that we have been given the gift of another day. In that gift, O oh God, we pray that you will calm our minds and that you will settle our hearts. That in this space, in this moment, your spirit will move in such a way that both the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts gathered here in your sight will be pleasing, will be glorifying, will be generous. For you and you alone, O oh God, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I was going to start this sermon by saying that there's something about this parable that just doesn't compute. And then I read it a few more times, and I realized that's actually not quite right. There's actually a lot about this parable that just doesn't compute. I mean, we start, right, with this wasteful Manager. It doesn't really explain to us exactly the nature of his wastefulness, but we're led to believe that at very best he's dishonest, and at very worst he may be outright criminal. And when this wasteful manager realizes that the hammer is about to drop, that his job is about to get axed, he sort of doubles down, doesn't he? He goes out and he begins taking actions that aren't really his to take, but he takes them anyway in order to protect his own self-interest. But most incomputable of it all is this master, his boss, comes back at the end of this parable and commends him applauds his dishonest behavior, apparently, approves of his acting shrewdly. I've often confessed to you all when we read parables and worship that more often than not, parables leave me scratching my head. I sometimes feel alone in that, like everyone out here, everyone just gets the parables, and I'm sort of the one that's like, uh, what do you do with this? It was very comforting to me then this past week when I came across a theologian who uh, wrote in the early 20th century about this parable saying that this parable of the dishonest manager is the problem child of all parable exegesis. If you have trouble making sense of any parable, then you're definitely going to struggle with this one. So maybe a good starting place then is to acknowledge that parables are not necessarily meant to be understood. Jesus does not teach in parables so that we can take them and strap them to the chair and poke them until they start giving us some meaning. Instead, Jesus teaches in parables for a different reason. He wants the parables to surprise us to indict us sometimes, to challenge us. He wants us to bring our own stories to these stories and perhaps from the surprise and the challenge we feel in them reach some new insight. So what is it in this parable that challenges us? What is it that, that surprises us? I know what it was for me when I read this parable, what it was that surprised me. The thing that surprises me most about this parable of the dishonest manager are the second chances. Did anyone here ever do anything wrong as a child? 
did any of our children in worship perhaps do anything wrong as a child? I see a mother leaning over and looking at her daughter. That's probably a good sign that, yes, some of us remember doing wrong things as children, right? Alan, don't throw the ball in the house. And 15 seconds later, the window is broken, right? Matt, do not even think about touching those car keys. Then as soon as the parents walk out the door, there goes Matt, joy riding around the neighborhood, right? Did anyone else have experiences like that? And the worst part of those experiences is after you do them, you sit there and you wait for the boss, the authority figure, perhaps your parents, to come home and you're just anticipating what that hammer is going to feel like when it drops on you. But instead, sometimes, that authority figure, that master, walks through the door, and instead of punishment, they just give you the look. There's not anger in the look. There's not judgment in the look. There's just something in the look that says, I know you can do better. This wasteful manager, he digs himself a hole. You know, again, we don't know what it is, but it probably had some mix of excess and greed and exploitation wrapped up in it. He recognizes his mistake, and then he starts digging the hole deeper. He starts giving away things that aren't his to give away, and then he waits for the boss to come in and issue the judgment, the verdict. Except when the master walks through the door, That's not what happens. The master commends the manager. I have to be honest with you. This is one of the parts of this parable I just don't understand. I don't get the commending of the dishonest behavior. But there is something wrapped up in that that I do recognize. The master is giving this manager a second chance. You know, church people, for a long, long time, we've had a word for second chances. And the word is grace. That's what's going on here. The master gives the manager grace. So we're in the process here at the church. We're putting together a team of folks who are going to help lead us in stewardship as a church. So I've been reading a lot about stewardship. Stewardship, of course, is our giving of time and of talents, but it's also about money, right? And that's what this parable is also about. We can't ignore that. There's money issues wrapped up in this teaching, and we're going to get to that. I've been reading, though, a lot around just sort of church stewardship in general, and I came across this article that I'm going to send this team, and the article was titled, Five Questions That Every Christian Leader Needs to Ask When Doing Church Fundraising. Some of the questions we can all guess, right? What's your mission? What are you trying to accomplish? That's an important question to ask when you're, you're fundraising. What's your elevator speech? You need to know that, too, when you're meeting with people. But the fifth question in this article, the last one, was the one that stuck with me. The author of this article who leads stewardship for one of the largest churches in our denomination in Charlotte, North Carolina, he said, the question every stewardship leader in every church needs to be able to answer is, what are you grateful for? What are you grateful for? Christian, or rather gratitude, he writes, is at the heart of Christian generosity. 
we give in response to God's grace. We are generous, in other words, because God has been generous to us. God has shown us second chances. Do you all have people in your life who are generous in such a way that it's not sort of showy, like they're trying to draw attention to themselves? And it's not because they're trying to get something from you either, but they're just generous because it seems like they're grateful people. There's a guy in Atlanta, some of you all might know him, someone in the early service did. His name's Pat Patilla. Pat, almost 40 years ago, had a daughter who was studying at Emory, and she spent a summer in the desert of Jordan. Uh, She was studying there uh, with a group of other Emory students under the leadership of uh, a professor from Emory, a biblical archaeologist named Max Miller. And at the end of that summer, 40 years ago, Pat and his wife, they went out to visit their daughter, in the Middle East. And while they were there, they asked Max, who had spent his whole career to that point traversing that region, doing his research, they said, Max, would you be willing to take a week and and just show us this region and share with us what you know? So Max said, sure. And Max drove them all around Jordan. They went into Syria. I think they ducked into Lebanon. They went through Israel. And this experience left such a mark on Pat. It was such a formative experience in his own faith journey that when he got back to Atlanta, he wrote a note to Max Miller, and he said, Max, you need to know how amazing that week was. And I think every seminary student should at least have the opportunity to take a trip like that one. How much would that cost? And Max thought about it for a little while, and he eventually wrote a note back to Pat, and he included in this note a number. And several weeks later, there in the mail was a check for that amount. For the next 35 years or so, Pat Patillo wrote a check every single year to send 25 or so seminary students from across the theological spectrum The Southern Baptists from Louisville and the the Disciples of Christ from Tennessee and the, the Methodists from Emory and Duke and the crazy Presbyterians from Columbia. For 35 years, he sent 25 people every summer to spend three weeks with Max Miller having the experience that they had four decades ago. I was one of those students in 2012. And it was, for me, in the truest sense of the word, a life-changing experience. It opened to me uh, areas of biblical scholarship and, and of what Jesus saw and what he would have experienced that I never could have understood without being there and being asked for three straight weeks to do nothing more than wake up and learn. All because one man who I have to this day never met, Pat Patillo, decided that he was grateful for an experience he had and he wanted to share it with others. Do you all have people like that in your life? I mentioned last week this preaching group that I have the privilege of being a part of. It's, it's eight pastors from across the southeast and Texas. I asked the early service, is Texas part of the southeast or is Texas just like Texas? I'm, I'm not sure. But it's, it's many states, 
And we serve churches as big as 3,000 members and as small as 100. And every month we gather for two hours of learning under the leadership of two now retired but uh, highly respected preachers and pastors who have led two of the largest and most historic churches in our denomination during their ministry. And we're asked to just learn. We get together twice a year in person, North Carolina and Atlanta. And the people who dream this up, who make it happen, are just normal Sunday morning worshiping Presbyterians. A couple named George and Kathy Manning. They'll come here at some point. They like to visit the churches that participants are, are a part of. This is a couple who, who have grown up in the church and been shaped and formed and changed by it. And so a few years ago, they said, Christian preaching in the Presbyterian tradition has helped make us who we are. Tom and Steve, what would it take to help make sure that for future generations in the church, we can pour into current Christian leaders and pastors and preachers? And Tom and Steve said, well, it probably cost about this much. And they said, okay. We were in their home in Atlanta in February, and we had a dinner that night, and they asked the pastors in the group to share what this experience means to them. And as we were going around the circle, someone said, you know, George and Kathy, I just want you to know how much it means that you would invest in us. And George stopped her mid-sentence, and with tears, he was weeping, he said to her, Listen, this isn't an investment. We don't expect a single thing from you in return. This, this program, this pouring into you, it's a gift that we want to offer. We are grateful, and so we desire to be generous. Do you have people like that in your life? You know, we're getting ready for this significant renovation of our campus. And what has made it possible for us to reach this point is the generosity of many of you, of people who have said, we desire to support the ministry of this church for long after we are gone. And it's been a privilege to sit with people and answer questions and hear people's curiosity and desire to participate in this. But I have to tell you, that some of the most moving moments, some of the most impactful pledges have not been the largest ones. In fact, they've been the smallest. They've come from people who I know for a fact could spend that money on other things, and rightfully so. But they are people who are grateful for the ministry and the love of this church, people whose lives have, have literally been changed and impacted because of you all, because of this family of faith. And so they offer what I consider to be leadership gifts to this campaign because they are grateful, and so they desire to be generous right back. People who know grace, People who have been surprised by second chances in their own lives. They lead lives in return that I can only describe as being lives of irrational generosity. 
I mean, how else do you explain someone crying at the opportunity to say to others who they have given countless dollars to, this is a gift? I don't always try and tie in the bulletin cover image to the sermons, but for whatever reason, the last two weeks, we've had back-to-back ones where it's hard for me not to. The image on the front of our bulletin today is of a sculpture. Some people in New York might recognize this sculpture. It's titled Fearless Girl. I didn't choose this sculpture because of where it's located. It's on Wall Street in New York City. Wall Street, of course, for all the good that it's capable of doing, it can also elicit not-so-good sides of human beings when it comes to money but I didn't choose it because of that. I didn't choose it either because of why this sculpture was commissioned by a firm there on Wall Street about two years ago. It was commissioned for International Women's Day. It was commissioned to be sort of a statement about gender equality, a worthy and an important statement, but that's not why I chose to have it on our bulletin cover today. I chose it because something about this picture doesn't compute. I mean, here you have this raging, huge animal, right? Just its poise makes it look like it's about to launch at this little girl. And on the other side, you have this little girl. And yet when you look at her stance, I read determination. And when I look at this picture of little girl versus massive animal, I don't know about you all, but every time it is clear to me who's going to win. And it's not the bull. I think it's an image for us of the kind of posture that this parable invites all of us to live by. Because we don't know what happens to the manager after this story, do we? And for that matter, we don't know what happens to the debtors either. Can you imagine being one of those people who gets pulled in and says, well, your debt is cut in half. What's that conversation like that night around the dinner table? But we don't know. We don't know what happens after this story ends. But I like to imagine that for them and for us, that having been surprised by grace, having been given a second chance, the posture from which they live life itself, it changes from that day forward. It changes from fear. Remember that line that the manager uses, I'm I'm too uh, weak to dig and I'm too ashamed to beg? That's a posture of fear. It changes from that place of fear to fearlessness. And from fearlessness to determination. That having been given a second chance, suddenly they and we can find ourselves planting our feet and fixing our gaze and assuming a stance that is set in the belief that our strength and our size and our fierceness, it's not determined by how much money we have or how bullish we are with it, but rather how determined we are to share it with others. You know, I don't always understand parables, but I can understand that. Because while faith and love and life, while faith and love and life that assumes that posture, 
that practices that irrational generosity, that extends second chances, that cries when giving a gift. It may not always compute for us, but to God, to the one true master, it always adds up. Friends, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, thanks be to God, and amen.